I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about. And we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. And we're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, teaching race. I'm a mom of three, uh, 14, 12, and nine. They might be the only black children in their classroom, and I remember my, my middle child was four years old when she came home and she told me that she wanted long, stringy yellow hair. And I said, what? She's like, I want to have long, stringy yellow hair like my friends. My name is Dr. LaShawn C. Williams. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and full-time faculty at Salt Lake Community College in the social work program. For me, as a, as a Black mom married to a white Latino man, I initially believed that it was enough to just have representation in the home, you know, the pictures and the TV shows we watched. But the fact that my daughter still came home and told me that she wanted to have long blonde hair, I was like, I have to talk about this. About the beauty of diversity and the basics of biological difference in skin and hair color. Things she thought her kids would just absorb in a multiracial household. Things she'd love for them and their classmates to be learning at school, too. I do wish that they could find ways to integrate it as simple as when they talk about the weather every day. Like my kids learn about a a waxing gibbous and all these different moon phases, right? But they don't know how to talk about skin color differences and just the biology of melanin and what that means. And I think our common refrain is, well, kids don't worry about that kind of stuff. They might not worry about it, but they do notice it. Should teachers of school children in America be talking about race more or less or even at all? Is there any value in a lesson about why some people have brown skin and curly hair and some have white skin and blonde hair? How should teachers talk about the way people with black and brown skin have been treated by people with white skin in American history? How do we make sure that no child feels ashamed because of their skin color? Is it possible for these conversations to create harmony rather than deepen divides? The debate over how race and America's history related to race should be taught in schools has come to feel black and white. You're either for it or against it. But race isn't black and white, and neither is the issue of how to discuss it in schools. So today we are sharing perspectives that are especially complex in the hope that they'll help us to see the issue more clearly. There's LaShawn Williams, who you've already heard a bit from. She is Black, and her kids identify as Black. But they're so light-skinned that strangers often assume they're white. And so they're going to hear things, and they're going to see things about Blackness and brownness that if people knew they were Black, they wouldn't say those things in front of them. There are parents who are saying, I don't want my kid harmed if this new thing is introduced. There are other of us of parents who are saying, I don't want my kid harmed because of these years and decades of what's been in the classroom. So how do we come together in that? We'll also hear from a white mother with four adopted children who are Black. She has worked to eliminate the influence of critical race theory in her kids' schools. What I want more than anything for my children is for them to know that they're beautiful and that they're strong and that they can stand up to anybody no matter what they say and they can always know who they are. And as far as healing society, I think that needs to be done, but I, I think such a values-based infusion of curriculum without parental weigh-in or guidance is irresponsible in a free society where all of our money is going to pay for what some would call indoctrination in some, in some instances. And we'll hear from a teacher who's white, like most public school teachers in America, trying to help her colleagues tackle race in the classroom. What we see when we interview students across the country is that we have a whole nother generation of white students who are scared to talk about race. They're scared they're going to say the wrong thing. They've been shushed by their parents or their teachers. If we don't have students who are able to talk about race, we're never going to be able to interrupt racism. 
So what if we start by assuming that all parents want what's best for their kids when it comes to talking about race? And we assume that teachers want what's best for all of their students. Well, that's at least some common ground, right? Suppose we lean into that and see where it leads. My kids identify as Black. Um, They know that they don't look Black to people because their father is white and Mexican. And so my kids are Black, white, and Mexican, but they identify most with Black culture and Black community. This is LaShawn Williams again, the social work professor with three kids who are 9, 12, and 14 years old. My kids have what you would consider like Eurocentric features. They're very, very light-skinned, and it informs a number of their experiences as Black people. They'll say, Mom, no one believes that I'm Black. And my youngest one is the one who's like the most offended. (laughs) This is ever since first grade that she would tell people she's Black and they wouldn't believe her. And she'd be so offended that they didn't believe that she's Black. And she's like, that's what I am because my mommy's Black and I'm Black. It might help, she says, if her kids and their mostly non-Black classmates were learning about race at school. Even just the basics of why skin color differs and how it can drive unconscious decisions we make about people. But instead, her kids often find themselves caught in the middle. The biggest thing that my kids hear that is most uncomfortable for them is the use of the N-word by all kinds of non-Black people. Really? Yes, yes. They talk about how uncomfortable it is for them to see other brown kids, um, Hispanic kids and Polynesian kids specifically using the N-word to and with each other um, or using it as insults against other kids who aren't Black, but it's like that's the ultimate insult is to call them the N-word. And so I'm actively find myself educating my kids about the word, about the usage. And the question that I posed to them, I said, do you hear them using any of their own ethnic slurs against themselves or only ours, only Black communities' ethnic slur? And they said, no. I said, so there's something to that. What has happened in our country that that is the word everyone wants to use? One of the things that we talked about as they gained more racial awareness was how they would be living in two worlds psychologically. They will know that they're Black, but they will be in places where people don't know. And so they're going to hear things and they're going to see things about Blackness and brownness and differentness and marginalizations that if people knew they were Black, they wouldn't say those things in front of them. So I tell my kids, you have a double burden in some ways. One is to speak up for everybody, period, because we don't allow oppression. But two is to actively speak up against racism as well, which will mean exposing yourself as a Black person in those times that you choose and the burden of knowing that you have the choice to choose. What do you think is the best way? I imagine you've had conversations with teachers about how they're teaching slavery, Mm -hmm. how they're teaching the Civil War, Mm -hmm. how they're teaching the Civil Rights Movement, Jim Crow. How would you like for those things to be taught? Does there need to be more, less? I think it depends on what the goal or the outcome is. Yeah. Do you want people to learn information as a, as a timeline of the country? Uh, do you want them to have an empathic experience about the treatment of others and to understand how we've changed or how we haven't changed and why it's important to learn history so that it doesn't repeat itself? Or are we you know, kind of just moving our way through the state standards. Hmm. I think we have a mix of those three. And there are attempts that are made for the civil, one of the Civil War units was being covered and they brought cotton to class. And they had the kids pass around the cotton while they played like um, either a Negro spiritual or a, a work song during enslavement. I think my child and one other black child were in the classroom and he remembered feeling eyes on him as he was holding the cotton and he just felt weird about it. He said, it's not like anything negative happened. No one said anything bad, but it was the feeling in the room. They had the kids think about what it might've been like for them to have to pick cotton. That's a different thing for my kid than it is for any other, any other kid in the, in the room that's not black. Because your child knows that he's descended of enslaved individuals. Correct. And not even, not only that, but going home and he talked about picking cotton. And I said, hey, mom, what was it like for you? And my kid was like, what? Grandma picked cotton? Grandma, you were a slave? And she's like, no, baby, I wasn't a slave, but I was a sharecropper. And so then in my household, in my family, because our family history is 
descending from enslavement, being pushed into sharecropping as the extension of enslavement. My mother was a sharecropper at four years old. My mom didn't go to school a full year because she was working in the fields and they only went to school when the harvest was over. So my child comes home and gets that family history after experiencing an object lesson in school. What other kids are going home and experiencing that? Now, I bet you there are kids that can come in and say, my grandmother is an agricultural worker, my grandmother, my grandfather is a migrant worker, and they're up every morning waiting for the truck to come pick them up. But we're not bringing these lived experiences into the classroom because we're like, oh, that's history. That's now. I mean, there is a lot of concern uh, in this latest debate over teaching, for example, enslavement, the history of slavery as having ongoing consequences. Mm -hmm. So that you know, the idea that there has been systemic discrimination or that, you know, embedded in our society are certain biases yes. that play out in daily life for people of color. Yes. Um, is that something that you would like to see the teachers of your children teaching more directly or more, more, more often in class? If they're able to handle the conversations that will come. If the teachers are if able to handle. If the teachers can handle the conversation. What do you mean by that? I mean that when students say, well, it's so long ago, why don't they just get over it? Can the teacher respond to that? Can you validate what the kid is saying? Yeah, you're right. It was a long time ago. But do you know what else happened after that? I want every teacher to have the support and the freedom to converse with students when a topic comes up. And if a, if a teacher has to dismiss or deflect or it causes them to feel stressed out, I don't want it in the classroom. I can handle my kids' stress level when they come home. I don't want it to play out in the classroom where then my kid has to return to that classroom day after day and remember that uncomfortable experience. It's already going to happen when the topic comes up and they feel all the eyes on them because we're talking about enslavement. So you sympathize with teachers who are sort of maybe just choosing to skirt those mm -hmm. conversations yeah. in class. Um, it's interesting, though, because y your concerns about how a teacher that can't, that, that's not equipped to handle that conversation could end up, the conversation could end up harming kids. Yes. Is the same concern that I have also heard from parents who want to ban CRT, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Their concern is that kids are going to come away feeling shamed, feeling judged, feeling lesser than white children would be experiencing that, um, or that there would be divisions, that it would inflame divisions. And so, I mean, in a strange way, it's, it's you know, it's, it's common ground to some of these parents who say, I don't want anything about race discussed in classrooms. Absolutely. I just don't have the privilege to not want those things discussed. There are so many things that are already happening in the classrooms that are harming kids, black and brown kids, marginalized kids. There's already conversations that are there in the textbooks. McGraw-Hill, whatever the publisher is, the curriculum was already approved that will rewrite history and say uh, African people were brought over to labor as workers. That's not what it was. We were enslaved and taken, you know, against our will and we lost family, history, culture, language, community. We lost identity. That's what that was. There are parents who are saying, I don't want my kid harmed if this new thing is introduced. There are other of us of parents who are saying, I don't want my kid harmed because of these years and decades of what's been in the classroom. So how do we come together in that? And so what would, the, what would you like to see teachers doing differently or better when they teach that unit? So it's tricky and complicated. The brilliance of African nations is what led to or contributed to the transatlantic slave trade. And it's the brilliance of African nations, peoples who were enslaved that built the superpowers of the world. And we owe our standing in the world to the brilliance that survived enslavement. The black people you see today are the ones who survived what was done to them. The rapes, the beatings, the murders, the civil rights. Before Martin Luther King, these people had to survive horrible circumstances. Every time you see a black person, you're seeing someone who survived something horrendous. Every time you see an indigenous person or a Hispanic person, you're seeing someone who has survived something horrendous in our country. Are we better now than we were then? Those are the conversations that I want all of us having. I do. And then, well, what does it mean when you see a white person? That's a great question. We have trauma and we have folks who have perpetuated trauma. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. 
What does it mean to bring in that part of the conversation? How do y'all want to have that conversation about the things that white supremacy has done? I would love to know how white people want us to teach enslavement, because what we know is that there were slaves. Well, who enslaved them and why? Why can't we have that conversation? Why is the only permissible conversation that there were slaves? And then there was Martin Luther King, and now everything is fine. So what would your message be then to a white parent of a white classmate of one of your children? Um, If that white parent says, I'm just really worried if we talk, if, I mean, if the teacher's going to talk a lot about the enslaver who was white, my kid's going to come away feeling ashamed because of their whiteness. And it wasn't their fault. We aren't related to that enslaver. I understand that you're not related to that enslaver, but we are all impacted by enslavement. Mm. And if we're going to teach enslavement, somebody enslaved Black people. And so you may not be that white person, but what if you all are more like John Brown? There were so many white abolitionists. Can we bring in that conversation? John Brown had his sons raid Harper's Ferry against enslavement. What if you're like Bill Moore, who marched from Mississippi to D.C. but was killed by the Klan for speaking up against white supremacy and speaking up against racism? What if you're like those people? And now black folk, we were abolitionists too. There were so many slave revolts on the ships and on the land and in the Caribbean and in the U.S. and in South America and in Brazil, right? We have those conversations as well. Let's bring in all of them. So it's a much more complicated story. You want to complicate the narrative in order to provide more outcomes. Um, what What has worked for you as a parent in trying to encourage the kinds of conversations that you want to see happen? Being willing to go into the classroom. I will often tell teachers, hey, I am that mom. If you need someone to come into the classroom and do something subversive that you can't do, please call me. Like what? Like, come in and talk about race. I think more of us need to be willing to leverage where we can. As a parent, there are more things that I can do in the classroom that maybe a teacher can't. I can be explained away. So I volunteer to come into the classroom. I volunteer to share materials. And I'm not someone who erupts with outrage. I don't want anyone to be scared when they see me coming. I will tell the teachers and administration, if I'm going to come to you with a problem, I will always bring a solution or be willing to brainstorm. Mm. And that's what I think we need more of. For the parents who don't want CRT and want to ban books, okay, well, what's your, besides banning and removing and, and causing all of this stress for teachers, what's your solution? How do we still teach these things? Do you want to be able to opt out? Like, you know, we had to, uh, parents that opt out of Black History Month because they didn't want it to be taught. I guess that's your right. But what what are we trying to do? How are we really trying to help? I think our teachers are asked to do way too much with way too little. I'm hesitant to ask them to do more. I would love if there were more time in the day for us to be involved in PTAs and school community councils to affect uh, curricular changes. I think those of us who have the time and the ability um, and the and the awareness, can we help review curriculum? Prior to it being adopted, can we offer some suggestions about how this one might go a little bit left? Here's a way to adjust it or address it. Can we have parents on standby that are willing to engage and ask questions from other parents so that it diverts from the teachers back to us? Like, I think there we have options that we haven't really tapped into yet. LaShawn C. Williams is a social worker, a professor at Salt Lake Community College, and a mother of three. We'll hear from Brooke Stevens next. Her African-American children also attend predominantly white schools, and she too would like for her kids' teachers to be equipped to discuss things like racism and bias. I think it would be great, but it's becoming so infused with different perspectives and values that are being taught in the school that I don't agree with, and I think that it's very problematic and can be very divisive. Which is why she has worked to limit those conversations in her kids' schools. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. My name is Brooke Stevens, and I live in Utah. I'm white, and my husband is also, and we adopted our four children, and they're African-American. We didn't specify gender or race or ethnicity. We just said, whoever wants a home. And so um, then our two oldest were a sibling set and they matched us. 
The first two kids were toddlers, and when the same birth mother had two more children, the Stevens were given the chance to adopt each of those babies, keeping the siblings together. That was just over a decade ago. My oldest is 18, my youngest is nine. Uh, so he, my oldest has graduated, my daughter is in high school, 10th grade, and then fourth and fifth grade. Did you have concerns about how you might be able to raise children who are Black in ha having not had the experience of living as a Black person in America yourself? Um, well, they when they we went through all the training to be foster parents, they really stressed uh, teaching their children about their heritage. So, so I think I went overboard when I first adopted them, and I noticed that my son didn't care, and I would be like. Now, here is Africa, and you're, <laughs> and I would teach him all these different things, and um, he didn't seem to care. So mm -hmm. I kind of follow their lead now. And like, if it matters to them, I'll talk about it more. Like, just yesterday, we had family night, and that's when we get together. So I got all my books out. I love family history and showed them um, my biological side and my husband's. And then I said, plus you have your birth family too, because I've researched their line all the way back to Africa on the slave ship. Really? Yes. And I found out that after the Emancipation Proclamation, that they're common, because they have all different dads, their common um, ancestor, he was one of the first landowners, and I have a certificate where he owned 100 acres. So I talked to the birth family to try and piece all this together with pictures and and everything so that they they are tied and feel their place. Um, I want them to just feel that they belong. And, and I'm like, you get two families to belong to. Brooke Stevens and her family have only lived in Utah for a couple of years. They came from California during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because the schools were open and it felt like freedom. We came to visit a friend, no intention to move. And it felt free here. Like there was a palpable feeling of freedom. They settled in northern Utah, and Stevens joined Utah Parents United, which is an advocacy group that fought to reopen schools and end mask requirements. The group has since pushed to ban critical race theory and remove certain books from school libraries. Brooke Stevens is their curriculum director. The schools her kids attend in Utah now are a lot less diverse than the ones they moved from. In California, there was no majority no ethnic majority yeah. in one of my kids' um, schools. And they're, they're from every, everybody from everywhere. And that was a, a rich experience. Do you miss um, ha having your kids in those really diverse schools in California? Um, I don't, I like it here too. I like it there. I think there, there are benefits. Do your kids notice? Are they the only black children in their classes? Oh, I haven't asked them. Huh. Um, I guess I could ask them. <laughs> or look at their yearbook. Um, I think they, well, they experienced more racism there. In California? And, yeah, and the racism here, I don't report it because I don't like the Department of Justice getting involved. In 2021, the school district they attend in northern Utah was found by the U.S. Department of Justice to have, quote, failed to address widespread race-based harassment of students of color, specifically Black and Asian American students. The investigation showed Black students across the district were routinely called the N-word and other racial epithets by white and other non-Black students. They were taunted with monkey noises, referred to as slaves, and told their skin was dirty or looked like feces. The school district is under supervision by the Department of Justice as it tries to address what the report called systemic failures. Now, Brooke Stevens and her children arrived after the period included in that investigation, but before the findings were released publicly. And she says she was comfortable with how the principal had been dealing with racist incidents as they came up. I, I am against an agency getting involved because then there's going to be regulation. And that will breed resentment. We need healing between individuals. And the, the way the principal was handing it, Blake, handling it before was to bring the kids in to the room and have a conversation with them. The principal knows the children, but the Department of Justice is now going to, um, they have a, a team 
that's dedicated to the principal hands it over to a district team and they will come investigate it and they'll do a report and whatever. And I think um, that it's best handled locally. So I've emailed the principal saying, I don't want anyone interviewing my child and I would rather deal with it one-on-one. Like I liked how the principal would bring them in to talk about it one-on-one because that's where the real problem is and that's therefore where the solution is. Stephen says she's emphasized the power of one-on-one interaction in talking with her kids about racism, too. I think you have to do it kid by kid. And so, especially during February, you know, we watch, I got the Disney Ruby Bridges movie out, and we talked about it and watched it. And my, one of my kids is super, super sensitive. And so I like to point out things of, like, perspectives that they can use when they view it. So as she was being walked into the school and there were all these angry white people screaming at her and, and there were white people in front of her, the policemen leading her in, I just, I tried to focus on, um, look how brave she is and look at those people who are standing up and walking beside her and look how confused the people on the side are. They don't know what it is. So I'm, I'm trying to give them a perspective to perceive all of this injustice um, as, as ignorance, mm-hmm. like when they face, because I've always tried to have the conversation with them first about racism and I would point it out to them. So like my kid was, I think my oldest was, I don't know, six or something. We're walking through the park and we see this black guy in the park yelling and there's three white guys with the knives around him. And I was like running with pumping my fist. I was going to get him. My husband luckily held me back. <laughs> and you were going to come to the aid. Yeah, I'm a nut. I was like, no, you can't. At least I distract or something. But my husband held me back and he started videoing. But after that, I started talking to my son about racism because I wanted to be the first one to have that conversation with him because I don't want him to carry it around as a burden or that the world is against him, even even if some perceive it that it is. Um, I want him to see that this has nothing to do with him and who he is. I want him to see that the people who believe these things are ignorant and that he gets to be an ambassador for understanding who he is as an individual. Mm. And um, so I just say, those people have no idea. And sometimes it's ignorance and sometimes it's hate, but it's never justified and never founded. And how would you do this? And so another time we were at the at the beach house in Southern California and his his white cousins weren't pulled over by the, there was a Hispanic security guard they weren't pulled over, but he was. He's like, where are you staying? Da, 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 da. And he's like, what? That was weird. And and I was like, oh, yeah, that was racism. And um, he's like, what? Why? And I'm like, well, I think people, when they don't have enough interaction with someone who is different or looks different, they rely on their stereotypes and their generalizations to put, to put it together. And I said, our brains are programmed to do that. And generally, it's a tool. Um that helps us perceive the world. And sometimes it can stop us if we think it's sufficient and don't continue learning. And so as we stay curious and keep learning, then the strengths of our brains aren't turned into a weakness by using those generalizations and stereotypes as the end of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to give him strategies what he could do. He could say, hi, my name is, and then give his name. It's nice to meet you. And, and and to address it head on, like, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it takes um, a lot of bravery to do that. But I think if you can take the anger and, and fear out of that, then I'm not putting a, a burden on their shoulders, which is what I don't want. I want them to be empowered and say, how do I deal with this? How do I see myself? And what I want more than anything for my children is for them to know that they're beautiful and that they're strong and that they can stand up to anybody no matter what they say and they can always know who they are. And, you know, maybe it will take um, terrible things to get in there. And I, I don't wish those terrible things, but I wish for that strength of character and determination for them more than I wish for anything. Let's talk about schools for a minute. Okay. So so not... Um white white children are not getting the same 
instruction often at home that, that you're giving to your children, where you're talking about where stereotypes come from and how ignorance drives bias and mistreatment. Do you think they could get it at school? Like, is there a place for a teacher to do the kind of thing that you were describing to, to raise a, a community of children that, that don't fall subject to ignorance because they haven't been taught? Um, I think that the parents need to teach that because it's becoming so infused with different perspectives and values that are being taught in the school that I don't agree with. And I think that it's very problematic and can be very divisive. Mm -hmm. And so because that's the angle that it's headed, I, I think it would be great, but there are so many different angles that are being presented that, you know, in, with good intentions, but it will end up being more divided. That is her concern with critical race theory, which she views as an ideology that shapes the way teachers talk about race and America's racial history. Critical race theory is divisive. And when it labels you by your skin color as oppressed and oppressor, and that we're not all one human family and it goes against religious things, like you're responsible for something you never did, but that goes directly in contrast with, with the religious beliefs that we are one family and that Christ takes all of our sins and, and can help make it up to us because we all suffer and it's all unfair and that we walk with each other. But we don't have to judge. We don't have to save. We, we can help them turn to Christ. And so for schools to teach things that go against religious beliefs and faith, faith beliefs, is not right. They need to, schools need to remain neutral and stick with academics. And as far as healing society, um, you know, I think that needs to be done. But I, I think such a values-based uh, infusion of curriculum without parent, parental, you know, weigh-in or guidance or even knowing what it is, is irresponsible in a free society where all of our money is going to pay for, you know, what some would call indoctrination in some, in some instances. Proponents of critical race theory would say that is a distorted view of the concept. And over the last few years, the debate has often become two sides talking past each other, unable to agree on what they're even fighting about. Brooke Stevens is not completely opposed to conversations about race and racism in school. So long as what's taught doesn't harm her kids, cause division, or contradict her family's values. She believes CRT does those things, so she fought for it to be banned. And for the same reasons, she has opted her children out of social-emotional learning lessons that are part of the curriculum. She did that after her third-grade daughter came home confused about a discussion on prejudice. She got it messed up. Like, I don't remember exactly what she was taught or said, but she's like, yeah, and they killed all the blonde people with blue eyes because they have blonde hair and blue eyes. And I think it was something about the Holocaust or something. So I emailed her teacher. I'm like, do you remember what was taught? Because I'm trying to help her understand this, but I don't know what was said. So <laughs> it turned out that another student brought up Hitler during the lesson on prejudice, but his comments weren't accurate. The teacher corrected him and got the discussion back on track. But Stephen's daughter still ended up muddled and troubled. So she opted her kids out of future social-emotional learning lessons. And she thinks public school teachers should not be trying to fix society's problems. It's not their job. They're not trained counselors. They don't need to affect the values of the children. The parents are helping the children have values and learn to be kind. And, and, and of course, teachers reinforce it. They always have throughout history. They've done that. But to have specific classes to teach children values, their job is academics. There's just getting to be too much. It's not the school's place. And it's a very dangerous thing to introduce into the schools because you, schools have to remain neutral so that they can honor all families of different kinds. Brooke Stevens is curriculum director of Utah Parents United and the mother of four African-American children. Is it even possible for teachers to please parents like LaShawn Williams and Brooke Stevens? 
Mostly it has to do with confidence and humility. The more we can be vulnerable and real with our students around issues of race, just having some basic skill, vocabulary, it's not whether or not you're a good or bad person. We'll get a teacher's perspective next. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The vast majority of public school teachers in America today, 80%, are white. But data from the U.S. Department of Education also shows only 45%, so less than half of public school students, are white. And that leaves the potential for a lot of racial misunderstanding. And I know I felt totally ill-equipped when I was bumping up against all sorts of racial issues and tensions that naturally arrive in a classroom. This is Jenna Chandler-Ward. I've been a public school, private school, and private sector educator. And I've worked actually with pre-K all the way through graduate school for over 20 years. These days, she's a consultant who travels the country training white teachers to be more racially conscious. Because I know for me, when I was in graduate school, we were required to take maybe one class on multiculturalism, something sort of broad and never any discussion of how race enters the classroom, which it does every single day. So her training starts with helping white teachers to understand their own racial identity. And that sounds kind of crazy or counterintuitive or something, but the more I understand how whiteness has formed, created who I am, the more I'm able to understand people who grew outside of that and didn't have those messages or that same lens on the world. And so the more comfortable I am looking at my own race and my own racial experience, the more able I feel to talk about it in the classroom with other people, with people of other races. The organization Jenna Chandler Ward co-founded is called Teaching While White, and they've just published a book called Learning and Teaching While White. She says teachers have to be talking about race and racism because... It it walks into the classroom every day and kids are asking questions. They're also having issues, having cross-racial relationships in the school. There are racial tensions that are happening. They're seeing it on the news. They're seeing it in the media that they consume every day. And schools are ultimately a place to learn and so when we don't talk about it and we say, no, that's that's not a conversation for school, right? And this has happened lots of times around lots of different topics where it's called into question, is this the school's job? But when we're silent about it and say, no, that's not, we're not talking about that, the message it sends is that it's something bad, right? And that's where we're seeing the guilt and the shame that we hear so much about that people are concerned about right now. Kids get that message early, early on. We hear from kids as young as four years old who feel already nervous to talk about race because they've gotten the message loud and clear from adults that it's a bad thing to talk about or it's rude. And I think it comes from a place of fear that most adults have, that we just have not grown up in this country for the most part with the ability, skills, knowledge to have discussions about race, especially across race. And and you're speaking specifically, um, this would be primarily about white students, white adults, not knowing how to speak about race and feeling anxious about it. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Right. So for students of color and families of color, they don't have many, most, many don't have the option to wait to have that conversation. And that's another argument that I hear a lot is we don't want to burst the bubble of children. Well, which children? It's the white children, right? Because for many families, they've, they're having to have those conversations at a really early age. When we opt out as white people of the conversation, then it leaves all this room for harm to happen, for uh, misunderstanding, miscommunication. Could you give me a specific example of how the harm might play out in a classroom? So one of the sort of paradigms that we're trying to really shift is that usually when we talk about race in school, it's only ever in connection to oppression and being an oppressor, right? So what we hear time and time again in schools is that the first time kids have heard the word white 
is when they are in kindergarten and first grade and they have an MLK assembly and they learn that somebody white has shot this amazing person, Dr. Martin Luther King. And that is 100% true. But that is the first time we have named whiteness. And so when we only ever teach about race in connection with civil rights, with Jim Crow, with Japanese internment, right? Those are the only times we tend to name whiteness. And so by the time a student is their senior, a white student is in their senior year, they go, oh, here we go, MLK assembly, time to make me feel guilty again. Because again, that is the only time we're ever talking about whiteness explicitly. Otherwise, when we talk about race, you know, when we're reading a book, we might name an author as being from Costa Rica. But the assumption is, assume the author is white unless I tell you otherwise, right? So it becomes this sort of default, unnamed, unmarked thing that's happening at school, except when we talk about white people doing something oppressive. And the point is not to whitewash the history, so to speak, in any way. That history is true, but as long as there has been civil rights and struggle and racial uh, racial struggle, which is from the day this country was created, there have always been white people also standing in solidarity, trying to fight for the rights of people of color in this country. And we never teach that. And we never talk about what is melanin in the skin. Kids often don't know why are some people's skin darker than others, right? And it becomes this mythology that, you know, all the white kids happen to be in honors and AP classes. And though it's never described this way, the inherent message in that is that if you have white skin, you are somehow superior, have better intelligence. And the assumptions students make, again, because it's not discussed, is that black and brown kids who are less likely to be in those classes must have some sort of inferiority or deficit. And that's why they're not there. You know, we hear from kids in kindergarten saying none of the teachers are people of color, then the only black and brown people we see at school work in the cafeteria or maybe are janitors in the building. And so again, it's not that kids don't notice race. We'd like to believe that they are colorblind, but they see and they ask when they feel able to ask, why do we only see black and brown adults in our building in these roles, right? And what's the answer? How, how's a kindergarten teacher supposed to explain that? Or even a fifth grade teacher? Well, I, yeah, I think it's a, we need to be able to root ourselves in saying from the beginning, explaining what race is and that a long time ago, some people decided that people with more melanin in their skin were inferior or less than, right? And those people, they came up with the system a long time ago and it's not fair. So we're still trying to figure out how to make the, the system fair for everybody because we know that skin color, eye color, hair color has nothing to do with intelligence or ability, right? Yeah. Um, could you share an example of a situation where it, it, you know, the teacher, a white teacher in particular, um, when race comes up in, in the class just, you know, among children and the teacher afraid, afraid for, you know, to get in trouble one way or the other, afraid to say the wrong thing, just doesn't say anything. And what's the harm in that? Right. So it happens all the time. And I, again, this is not to point fingers because I did it all the time. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. In after school, somebody was asked, do you want vanilla or chocolate pudding? And somebody said chocolate. And they said, oh, you must be an N-word lover, right? As a joke. Most of these things happen as jokes. But that's a pretty serious thing to say, right? But what I would have done, what I did do is pretend not to hear it. I'm not prepared to have this conversation. Maybe I'm going to say something racist on accident and, and make, make the whole situation worse. But when I did that, that sent a message to everyone in the room who did hear it that I'm not going to keep them safe, that I, they know that I've likely heard that and that I'm not going to interrupt it, that I'm letting it just go. And when kids don't feel safe in the classroom, they're not able to learn from you. So unless I say, and even if I just say, you know what, something about that comment's not sitting right with me. I'm not sure exactly what, and I need some time to figure it out. Even if that's all I do, 
that at least marks the moment. And the students then see that I'm in control of the situation, that I'm not going to let those moments go uninterrupted. And therefore, they feel more safe in my classroom. And my job as the teacher is to make sure that everybody's full humanity and dignity is intact at the end of the day. And so we need to stop any time something like that happens. So how, how would a teacher know at the end of the year that they had been successful in this endeavor? Like, what, what, what would that look like? I think there are skills in particular that we want students to have. We want them to be able to name and talk about difference simply as difference and not as deficit, to be able to talk about people's identities and have the language they need to describe their identity and somebody else's. We want them to be able to look at the world and see uh, where there is unfairness and where that comes from and be able to think about that. And ultimately, my job is to give students the tools to be able to interrupt those moments so that when a when one of those jokes happens and there's not an adult there, which is most often, that there's a student there who says, you know what, I don't find that funny and let me tell you why. Because if we don't interrupt those moments, if we don't have students who are able to talk about race, we're never going to be able to interrupt racism. And how do you want white students to feel about being white? I don't want them to feel bad about being white. I don't also don't want them to feel like they're great just because they're white. I want them to understand that whiteness has impacted their lives, that it's impacted their experiences, and they aren't responsible for racism in this country, but it's our job to do something different and to be able to tackle it and challenge it and to change it. So it's not about putting the blame on white people. It's about taking responsibility as a community, as a country for what has happened in the past and changing it for the future, for the next generations. What do teachers need in order to do this effectively, white teachers in particular? Mostly it has to do with confidence and humility, honestly. I think as teachers, as adults in this country, we're often positioned to want to have all the answers and and not to look like we don't know something. But even if we don't know, I think naming that is so powerful and saying, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I would love to find out. Can we can we research it together? I think the more we can be vulnerable and real with our students around issues of race, naming ourselves as white, as white teachers, that it's not just the default. It's really about skills. And we talk about racial literacy. It's like any other form of literacy. You need to practice at it to get better at it. It's about having a skill. It's not about whether you're a good person or a bad person. Mm. So how would you coach a teacher um, to respond if after one of these scenarios where the teacher has led a conversation or it's come up and let's say that the kid goes home and they say something to the parent that, you know, that makes the parent concerned that maybe their kid now feels guilty for being white, for example. Well, first of all, I like to tell educators that if a, if a parent's raising a concern, that that's ultimately a good thing, that that means that they care about their child and about education. And those are things that we obviously value as educators as well. So there's common ground here that we are all trying to do what's best for kids. And what I tell adults, parents, and educators is that the research is deep and it is wide. That talking about race, talking about gender, talking about identity is what's best for kids. It is linked to academic achievement that being able to have the skills and knowledge to talk about identity makes kids better students. All of these skills are linked to academic achievement. So part of it is schools taking ownership. Like, no, actually, we do know what's best for kids. We do have knowledge, expertise, years of research that supports the work that we do. What would you advise a parent to do if, if they're concerned in any way about how race or racism might have come up in their child's class, what, what's the most productive way to go about making sure that 
your child is safe and getting the education that you want your child to get? I think the main thing is talking directly to the teacher and and approaching it with curiosity, not an assumption that something terrible has happened, right? So so leaning in with curiosity, understanding that maybe you don't have the full picture. But I think oftentimes it's much easier to to there's a lot of fear being spread out there on the news. It's really easy to tap into that, to talk to other parents first. Like, is this happening for you? What do you think? And so it often gets overblown into something that has very little uh, grounding in reality. So talking to the teacher as soon as possible, to, if you have any concern, but also giving some benefit of the doubt that teachers know what they're doing, that they have expertise and having curiosity, like why is my student experiencing this thing in one way and yet you're describing something different? So trying to fill in those gaps with curiosity and with humility and trust for teachers. Jenna, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Jenna Chandler-Ward is an educator, co-founder of Teaching While White, and co-author of a new book called Learning and Teaching While White. She talked about parents and teachers coming to this issue in a spirit of trust, that they each want what's best for the kids in the classroom. And both of the mothers we spoke to expressed a desire to have teachers in their kids' classrooms who can be trusted to navigate race-related topics in a way that leaves all the children feeling affirmed rather than afraid or ashamed. So that is a bit of common ground. But I think that also helps explain why this topic has become so divisive. Because as a nation right now, we are short on trust. Gallup has been polling Americans about this for decades. And our trust in the institutions that underpin our society is as low as it's ever been. We have little trust in public schools, the news media, the criminal justice system, the Supreme Court, the president, or Congress, which is at the very bottom of the heap. We can't take advantage of the common ground we do have as parents, teachers, and concerned citizens who want what's best for all kids if we can't figure out how to trust one another, which is depressing, I'll admit. But it's also a starting point. And all three of our guests today pointed to the next step. Be willing to have the difficult conversations, one-on-one, with humility. Trust can grow from there. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me, with help from James Hoops and Sam Payne. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Brandon Lewis, Mitchell Towsley, and Christian Mocatel. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.